morning, everyone. Good to see you this morning. When have you ever received a yes answer that made your day, changed your year, improved the course of your life? As I thought about this introduction, I, I thought through, and I have received many wonderful yeses in my life. Uh, first slide, I was accepted into Baptist Bible College back in 1988, which began my work in the gospel ministry many, many years ago. That was a good yes. I'd be in trouble if I didn't say that the best yes I ever received was from a cute 20-year-old blonde girl who said yes to becoming my wife many, many years ago. I've had different employers hire me, tell me yes, and, and hire me. Some good jobs, some not so good. But you would agree, a point I'm trying to make here, yes is almost always better than no, right? Another great yes in my life occurred in 2011, 12 years ago, when you, the members of Heather Hills, discerned that God had indeed gifted me to pastoral ministry. I don't know who created that meme to this day, but, um, but you believe that he had not only gifted me uh, to pastoral ministry, but gifted me to this body specifically by saying, yes, we think you should be one of our pastors. These are some of the biggest yeses in my life. I'm sure you also could put together a list like that for your life. Yeses are great. Yeses are exciting. Yeses are fulfilling. However, I've also had some no's in my life. How about you? Now that is not as fun of a trip down memory lane as yes. So I'm not going to bore you, depress me with that list. But... I will share one more very recent story that most of you are very familiar with from my recent past. In 2020, I applied for a $50,000 sabbatical grant from the Center for Congregations here in Indiana. I worked very hard on the application. In the application process, you have to spell out exactly what you would do with the money if you're awarded the grant. In order to help you through this exercise, they ask you a simple question. What makes your heart sing? First, just trying to prioritize your own heart if you have wife, busy children. It's not easy. Then crafting a strategy and a plan that fulfills the desires of your heart. What makes your heart sing? By the time you reach the end of the process, you're pretty invested. You've mentally created the experience of a lifetime. Then one normal afternoon in August, while you're sitting in your office working, you get an email. No. Disappointment? A little grief? Frustration? Proverbs 13:12 says, "Hope deferred makes the heart sick." And that's what I felt when I heard no. Have you ever been there? Disappointed, despairing, despondent. You've taken a gut punch and it landed perfectly. The wind is knocked out of you. The wind is out of your sails. And I would guess in a group this large, some of you are even feeling this kind of way this morning. But thankfully, that's not the way that proverb ends. It has a second half. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. One year later, I got another email. And most of you know this, of course. 
It was just as unexpected and unassuming as the first no email. And on the afternoon of August 30th, 2021, it was a Monday at 11.38 (laughs) a.m., I received a yes email. And my heart, which was a year later not still so sick, began to sing. The deferred hope of disappointment turned into a tree of life from a fulfilled desire. What a difference yes is from no. And that's what we'll hear about this morning. A God who loves to say yes. And not only loves to say yes, but has said yes. Let's have our hearts, I hope, sing together this morning as we learn together. The title of my message this morning is Dealing with Disappointment from, as Judy read, 1 Corinthians 12, or 1, 12 through 22. Speculations and disappointments had grown about why Paul had not come to Corinth sooner. He had said he would come. He did not. The Corinthians had developed a critical spirit, a judgmental spirit towards the apostle. And Paul now in his writing continues to reflect on his ministry among the Corinthians. And now what emerges is a clear note of pain and great concern because Paul knows that his relationship with the Corinthians has been broken. You can see our whole outline this morning as you are a note taker this morning. I glanced at the scripture journal. It kind of fits on one page there. And uh, you got three points that we will be looking at this morning. Paul seeks to restore his relationship with the Corinthian believers by moving towards them with a big heart, with a loving heart. He first assures them of his own sincerity and integrity. He boasts of a clear conscience. He reminds them of the true nature of Christian boasting in the first three verses, verses 12 through 14. Next, he will defend his integrity because he's, made a, he's, he's disappointingly broken a promise. There's a tension here. Paul says he has a clear conscience, but he's broken a promise. We need to reconcile that this morning. And lastly, Paul ties his reasoning to who God is and what God has already done for all of them in the last two verses. And while Paul breaks a promise... God gives eternal guarantees in verses 21 and 22. God will give eternal guarantees. You'll get those again. Well, so the, the, it, we always think about the Scripture and think about to understand it right for us today, we want to understand what it meant to them then. Paul's main point then was to answer his critics and to say this. If you can trust me to bring you the gospel... <laughs> Why can't you trust me to make my travel plans? One is huge. He's arguing from the greater to the lesser. If I can pick up the pulpit and this card is on the pulpit, then you can probably guess I can pick up the card. He's arguing from the greater to the lesser. That's his point to them this morning in the first century. You trust me to bring you the gospel? You're resting your entire eternity on the teachings that I brought to you? And yet, you can't accept that my, tra- uh, that my travel plans were, were a little unplanned? Just thinking about this right now, it's not in my notes, but Brian's planning to go to Israel. Maybe he won't go. We had a boy on our basketball team planning to leave for Israel in two days. He is not going. The trip was canceled. Our main point today is this. Faithfulness to Jesus 
is affirmation or proof of both God's blessing and presence and blessing. That's my point for you today. Paul had a point for them. Run through our grid. We will see that faithfulness to Jesus is the affirmation, the proof of both God's presence and God's blessing. All right, let's dive in. Point number one. Let's look at Paul's boast of a clear conscience. Let me read those three verses again. For our, actually, I may do this differently, okay? This is so wordy. Paul is very good at interrupting himself. He's just like me. I'll be talking to you about one thing I thought will pop in. I'll, I'll, I'll have some clarification thoughts, and then I'll finish my sentence. So I want to show you that right in the middle of this, beginning with verse 13, Paul writes, For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us. That is kind of an insertion. He's like, he, he's trying to be nice. He's trying to make a point. At the same time, we, we brought you some things you understand. You shouldn't think you know it all. I hope you end up knowing it all. This is the, the in, insertion. So what I'd like to do, just so that you can get the sense of what he's saying, that's a secondary thought, the primary thought, is I'm going to read verse 12, skip verse 13, and a part of verse 14, and pick up his thought. Follow me? I'm just going to skip that middle part. For our boast is this the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. Not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. And supremely so towards you, that on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Let's ask a couple of questions here. Why did Paul boast? This is interesting. The third word in verse 12 is the word boast. And he uses the word boast uh, two other times in these three verses. This is the first time he uses the word boast in the letter. This word boast occurs 59 times in the New Testament. 29 of them are in 2 Corinthians. Okay? Just as a starting point to understand that this is going to be something that Paul talks about all through the book. The Corinthians have allowed a worldly, fleshly mindset to seep into their community. They're embracing these super apostles. They're embracing giftedness. They value human strength, human cleverness, human smoothness. I couldn't remember the quote exactly, but in a message I preached about a year ago, I remember um, the quote, no man can think himself clever and Christ mighty to save at the same time. What are you relying on? Paul uses this word boast because how do people usually think of the word boasting? Who is it focused on? Well, it's on self. But Paul is going to use this word in a variety of ways through the letter. And he's going to turn the meaning of it upside down. While the Corinthians are boasting and celebrating and drawing strength from human impressiveness, throughout the whole letter, Paul will expose the folly of such boasting. But he doesn't do it by denying all boasting. He does it by saying, he kind of pokes fun at natural boasting. Here he boasts in his simplicity. (laughs) Now have you ever, I'm so simple! (laughs) No, 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 no. Later he will boast in his weakness. I'm so weak. And here he says, eventually, we, in, at the day of the Lord, we should boast in one another. 
I'm so for you. (laughs) So he doesn't deny boasting, but he uses this word boast in a very creative and almost pejorative way throughout the whole book. That's why he uses the word boast. Very interesting, too, at the end of the section there, the culmination of this boasting. You will boast of us and we will boast of you. He reminds them that one day Jesus will come and will make all things right. And this fractured church that is struggling with their leader, Paul, and as you read it, I, I just, I, I, reading First Corinthians makes me so, thank, so thankful for you. <laughs> and our relationship and the relationship you have with one another because there is not the sense of deep discontent that exists in this letter between Paul and the church at Corinth. The source of boasting will not be self. But in that day, on the day of the Lord, Paul will boast in the Corinthians and the Corinthians will boast in Paul. They will boast in one another. A believer's true satisfaction, one of the deep signs of their connection with God, authentic Christianity, is the fact that people love one another in a way that pleases God. Well, that's why Paul boasts. What does he boast in? Well, there's three things here. He boasts in the testimony of his own conscience. Conscience. All right. Got a couple of thoughts here about conscience. What's conscience about? Well, this would not be a new thought to you. Conscience is that inner voice that helps us think about what's right and wrong. And actually, there's a little bit more than right and than just that. It helps us, pushes us to do what is right. Carries with it the ideas of right and wrong, good and evil, guilt, or, or guiltlessness, not guilty. Do you know one of the greatest gifts that God gave you at your conversion was a clear conscience? He cleaned it. Because you were no longer guilty. But the Bible talks about different ways that we handle our conscience. Give me that next slide, please, Kyle. A couple of quotes here about conscience. Martin Luther said, to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. He obviously valued his conscience and thought that it was important to listen to it. Uh, Jonathan Edwards uh, said, the way to keep the conscience tender is to, to the utmost to resist sin. The Corinthians are accusing Paul of hypocrisy. And there's a little book there, uh, Andy Nasali, a guy who had been here kind of recently, wrote this children's book called The Little Voice in Your Head. If you have kids, that's a great resource there. It would be very, really helpful to you. They're accusing him of saying one thing and doing another. You can take that down, Kyle. It's cool. Um, and the New Testament talks to us about searing our consciences, putting them past the point of feeling. You know, when you got saved, you probably had this experience if you were a little older in life. You were like, Oh, I feel this weight came off. Oh, or when you have a great repentance experience. Oh, I feel so fresh and alive. The conscience is the spiritual nerve ending of the soul. It's where you connect to God. You must protect your conscience. Do you know how you deaden your conscience? Like you get a good callus and stick a needle in it. You can't even feel it. That's not the way you want to live your spiritual life. But the way to destroy and deaden your conscience is through hypocrisy. The Bible teaches us elsewhere in the New Testament. To lie. To just rub your conscience raw and so that it becomes calloused. The interesting thing here is that while they're accusing Paul of having hypocrisy, he says, hey, my conscience is good. 
This is a very, very valuable thing. Why is it good? Second thought, he behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. He had integrity. He did not say yes and then do no, and say no and then do yes, as we'll see in a moment. But he boasted in his integrity. Not in his accomplishments, not in his gifts. He boasted in the most simple and fundamental thing that he could, that he was, to use an com- old computer term, a WYSIWYG. What you see is what you get. And then he also boasted in the Corinthians himself. It's beautiful. Paul has a clear conscience, a claim to this. Second thought. If faithfulness is proof of God's presence and blessing, we have some tension to work out. Because Paul now, having said he has a clear conscience, is now going to address his disappointing broken promise. How can you have a clear conscience if you have done what is wrong? Let's read verses 15 through 20 together. Because of this, because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh? Ready to say yes, yes, and no, no. At the same time? For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. So Paul wants to clarify his motives and intentions here. And um, Kyle, I'm on, um, I'm on slide 13, if you can get there. What is the issue here? Do you remember 1 Corinthians chapter 16? The very end. We read this as we introduced 2 Corinthians. When we had our very first sermon, I highlighted a couple things through underlining. This is the point of contention. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia. For I intend to pass through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you. Or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Go ahead and give me that next slide, Kyle. And um, there's a map up here that we can glance at. And that doesn't come out real well, but far, far on the left there is Corinth. Ephesus is in the pink in the middle. Judea is on the far right. And that's Paul's third missionary journey. This is the time and place that we're discussing here. Paul is um, making his loop there, and he wanted to get to Corinth. But you remember uh, we learned in last week's message that the winter was so bad that Paul despaired of his own life, even to the point of death. Okay. Well, as a gentle shepherd, he's caring for the Corinthians. Paul hopes that they can understand what he's trying to say to them. Let's take a look at the text. First of all, there's a very odd expression here that might hit you funny and some have used wrongly. 
Because of this, I wanted to come to you first that you might have a second experience of grace. Some have taken this passage to mean that at some point you get saved and at a a subsequent point you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. This is not what Paul says and it will become very plain in the passage that the Spirit has already been with those who have received Christ. But what did Paul say and what is this second experience of grace? It is worth us understanding. If you turn back to 2 Corinthians Corinthians chapter 1, he offers grace and peace in the letter. And if you look at chapter uh, 1 verse 12, he says that he wanted to come to them not with earthly wisdom but by the grace of God. Have you ever heard the expression that I would grace you with my presence? In the simple reading of the text, that's all Paul is saying. I wanted to come so you could have a second experience of my grace. Right now, the grace of Paul is to them in the letter. Previously, it was in person. Wherever, this very letter represents the second experience of grace that the Corinthians would have had if Paul had come in line with his own original travel plans. Wherever you have apostolic preaching, whether person, letter, that is grace. If Paul had come, that would have been a second experience of grace. I just want to make sure that's clear. Building theology out of a a phrase that Paul is using to connect his travel plans and not in a section where we are teaching theology is poor Bible study. His point is his disappointing promise. And so he makes it very plain. It gets a little tedious. Verse 16, I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and come back to help you and have you send me on my way to Judea. Paul makes it clear that he was not able to follow through on his original travel plans. And so Paul expresses their their criticisms of him back to them with three expressions. Was I vacillating? Was I being flippant? Now, according to the Old Testament law, this was a serious charge. Leviticus 19, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. Verse 30 of Numbers, chapter 30 of Numbers, verse 2. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Jesus spoke about this. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. James chapter one, uh, James chapter 5, James spoke about this. This is not an uncommon thing. So if Paul was being flippant, this would be a serious charge. Was Paul letting his mouth run ahead of the truth? Was Paul just speaking lightly? No, Paul says he meant what he said, but he was unable to follow through. A second way he expresses the same truth. Was I making plans according to the flesh? Vacillating would be the same thing as making plans according to the flesh. The word flesh is Paul's word for wisdom that is earthly and fleshly. It's the opposite of being spiritual or having the Holy Spirit. Here we learn about the works of the flesh, but in another passage, Galatians, it's contrasted with the fruits of the Spirit. What Paul means to say here is that his plans were not made glibly. They were not made in manipulation. He was not simply saying to the Corinthians what they wanted to hear so that he could get away from them and then do what he really wanted to do. He was sincerely intending to spend time in Corinth for the sake of their spiritual well-being. And the last way he expresses this was I ready to say yes, yes, 
and no-no at the same time. I don't know why this came to me, but do you remember the 2004 presidential election? And there was a man named John Kerry running for office, and hypocrisy became such a significant thing. And, and political historians will tell you that probably that having this idea attached to him, and you see a picture of him on the left, and I don't mean to be negative towards him, it's just kind of funny. And on the right you see his face on a pair of flip-flops. And for you younger guys in here, that were actual chants. People would carry these around, flip-flop, flip flop. That, and, and, and political historians will tell us that that charge of hypocrisy towards that political candidate diminished people's confidence in him to the point that he lost the presidential election. Paul was being accused of the same thing. Are you saying yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Frivolous humans often say yes when the heart really means no and say no when the heart really means Yes, and Paul did not do this, he says. He was the same way all the way through. He was one person. He was not deceiving the Corinthians. And all three, he's getting at the same reality, namely being one thing on the outside, another thing on the inside. And Paul says, I had none of it. And I made that point already as we get to verse 18. As surely as God is faithful, Paul says, our word to you has not been yes and no. And Paul makes this appeal in verse 18. He puts his integrity in the same verse as God's faithfulness. Paul's conscience is so clear. Paul's sincerity is as certain as the very faithfulness of God. But Paul now is transitioning. He is not elevating himself this way, saying, God is getting on my level. But he is now wanting to think about something way deeper than this. It's not that Paul's integrity comes online with God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness is the explanation of Paul's integrity. No one could have integrity without God's faithfulness. Paul is tying the integrity of his apostolic preaching to God's faithfulness as the sustaining power of his own sincerity, his own integrity. And even greater than that, more than that, the faithfulness of God is not only seen in Paul's sincerity of ministry, but now Paul can't help himself, and he begins to speak about the actions of God's Son, the Lord Jesus, who came as a fulfillment to all of God's promises. If you know the writings of the Apostle Paul, you know that once his attention turns to the gospel, even slightly, both theology and praise are about to flow out of his love for God. And he begins to connect to the gospel in verses 19 and 20. At this point, he makes the shift as he defends his sincerity of motives and how he has dealt with the Corinthians. He now firmly plants his sincerity, not only in the thought of God's faithfulness generally, that God is faithful, but he goes to the second person of the Trinity and specifically in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 19, the Son of God Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis has a great quote here. Jesus forced open a door that had been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because of the resurrection. This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has opened. He calls him the Son of God, Jesus Christ. 
Most heresies deal with diminishing the person of Jesus. Paul clearly identifies him. Much of the New Testament is spent defending the divinity of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. These super apostles likely, it's not clear, likely would have been in the same camp, diminishing the person of Jesus Christ. Paul identifies him here as David's great son from 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Son of God, Jesus, who will reign over a great kingdom. The second half of verse 19, the message of the gospel came through Paul's preaching, and not just from Paul himself, but Paul reminds them almost subtly here that it wasn't, you have a problem with me, you also have a problem with Sylvanus and with Timothy. We came together. If you are dismissive of me, you are dismissive of the gospel foundation. He reminds them that people were involved in the gospel work. There was proclamation, a popular meme that's attributed to Francis of Assisi right now running around in Christian circles. I don't think it's really his quote, but it's been attributed to him. Recently says, preach the gospel every day, and if necessary, use words. Proclamation is necessary. That's how the Corinthians came to know Christ, through Paul's preaching i get what the meme means it means live out your faith right i'm not against that but the words are not helpful verse 20 is one of the culminations here you should memorize this phrase for all the promises of god find their yes in him i love that slide i love that picture the proclaimed christ is not yes and no in jesus It's always yes. What Paul is getting at is that the very integrity of God has been publicly proven in the arrival on the scene of world history of God's great yes in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. Friends, what would it be if God had declared maybe to sinners? But He has not declared maybe to sinners. He has said yes to them. Whatever God has pledged in Jesus, it is completed. Whatever God has said, He will do. In Christ, He has done it. Jesus Christ is the flesh and blood proof that God is faithful, that is true to His Word. Look at this slide here. Jesus fulfills all of God's promises. I've just put a few up here. We sang about them in Christ the true and better Adam. Jesus restores a fallen creation. Jesus will lead us in a new exodus. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He fulfills the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. He gives us a new and living way. Jesus is the better Adam. Jesus is the better Moses. Jesus is our great high priest forever. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus. And Paul tells us that in Jesus the answer is always yes. He never wavers from his commitment to God's will. He never wavers from his special mission that his father gave him to draw us closer and closer, to draw all people to himself. In Jesus, all of God's promises are completely fulfilled. In Jesus, we personally hear God say yes through human ears. In Jesus, we have right standing before God the Father for all eternity. And in this passage, Paul is God's yes among them as long as Paul is proclaiming Jesus. That is the connection. 
Listen to the words. For Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, is always yes. What wonderful words of promise. What would God say? Yes, I knit you together in your mother's womb. Yes, I love you. Yes, I forgive you. Yes, I will never leave you or forsake you. Yes, I want to bless you. Yes, I want the best for you. Yes, you can count on me. Yes, I never sleep or slumber. Yes, I have hopes, dreams, and plans for you. Yes, I am calling you to myself. Yes, I hear you when you pray. Yes, I want you to follow me. Yes, I want you close to me. Yes, I will give, you every, I will give everything to be in a relationship with you. Yes, I want you to love me more than anything or anyone else. Yes, Yes, I am worthy of that love. Yes, I keep every promise. Yes, I want to deliver you from sin. Yes, I want to turn your world upside down. Yes, yes, yes. This is the God who finds all, all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus. And what does Paul say? This is why through Him we say Amen. <laughs> We don't say amen so much in our culture. We say, yes. We should praise God because of Jesus' yes to us. Paul's accomplished a lot of purposes here in these few verses, defending his own integrity, reminding the Corinthians of God's integrity and faithfulness, identifying Christ as the proof of that faithfulness, and associating his own ministry integrity with God's faithfulness. And all of this Paul reminds us the way he always does is not for Paul's glory, the Corinthians' glory. We would turn our eyes to God and say, yes, amen. And we would be washed by this. And you see how faithfulness to Jesus is proof, is affirmation of God's presence and blessing in Paul's life. Last point, God's glorious guarantees. Last two verses. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put a seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. There are four blessings that are listed for those who say yes, amen to Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promises. The first one seems to be kind of a general blessing and the next three are specific blessings that flow from the first The first one is divine establishment. You see the whole trinity here. You see that God makes a promise. Christ fulfills the promise. The Spirit becomes the promised blessing. And we enjoy the blessing. The Scripture says, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. I want you to notice something there too. Even though they're fractured, even though the Corinthians are being negative towards Paul and their relationship is a little rocky, Paul moves into all First person plural pronouns. He's like, I'm still with you. I'm still with you. God has established us with you in Christ. This is divine establishment. God has given all of us in Christ an unshakable status that is solid as a rock. God has established us. He's given us spiritual life. This is the work of God when we believe in Jesus, His death, burial, and resurrection that God establishes our spiritual life. This is the umbrella blessing, how that happens now. 
is spelled out. He's not only established us, these blessings continue. He has anointed us. God sets us apart for himself, for his purposes, for his mission, an anointing, a blessing, a calling, a setting aside for a specific purpose. This is true of your life if you are in Christ. He has anointed you. He has set you apart not only for holiness, but for mission. Verse 22, and who has also put his seal on us like a letter We are marked as belonging to God. He has given us His seal, His name. We are His possession. We belong to Him. In the mark of the seal, He continues, He has given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Like an engagement ring. Like earnest money. We have the Holy Spirit living in our hearts as a guarantee. God has already begun this renovation work of the new creation in and through us. His Spirit lives in the world. He is changing me. He is changing you. And thereby, He is changing the world. The renovation that we are praying for has already begun. It's begun in our hearts. We have a down payment already. The rest of God's promises are guaranteed. This is not some isolated reference here. Verses you may know well. Paul writes this letter to the Ephesians and shares a similar truth. Verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1. In Him, Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire it to the praise of of his glory what a beautiful wonderful promise god is the same all the way through he doesn't say one thing and do another he proved it in sending jesus the fulfillment of all of his promises and for those who have been sealed with the spirit in union with the risen jesus christ we too are called to the kind of integrity that Paul is displaying in this passage. One of the great consequences of the fall is bad boasting. We tend to parade and project and pretend. We present one self to one context and another self to another context. Hypocrisy abounds. We convince others and perhaps even ourselves of false morality that we are lovable magnanimous kind superior likable but our deepest heart knows this is not who we truly are but this split identity is reversed in christ and he gives us back our wholeness and we relax into the liberating simplicity of just being one person again how exhausting to be a hypocrite And God just calls you to be you in Christ. We are who we are by God's grace. I want to invite the praise team back to the platform. We have just a couple minutes, and I've got a couple notes of application, and we will be done. What a beautiful passage. When I first began to read it, I thought, oh, great, I get to talk about Paul's travel plans. 
And as it is with most passages of the Scripture, you begin to study just a little bit and you see the depths of God's truth. A couple of thoughts here of application as we finish. First, people will disappoint us all the time. Praise the Lord God never will. He never will. So we should seek to live as people of simplicity and sincerity so that we could call attention to God's faithfulness. Show people who God really is, not for our own boasting, but to bring attention to God. Second thought, our union to Christ uh, should give us grace to one another as fellow sinners in common need of repentance. There's always going to be problems, even over something as petty as travel plans. But we who know that life isn't perfect and life is broken and we are so dependent on the grace of God should have great grace for one another. Not excusing sin, but we, we should have a lot of grace for one another. We are fellow sinners who must be continual repenters. Next thought. Don't doubt the truth of the Bible. It is a trustworthy guide. The Bible's not one book. It's 66 books combined into one binding written over a period of 1,500 years by 40 different authors from varying cultures, locations, and occupations, written in three different languages from three different continents during times of peace and war, and it has one central message, Jesus Christ. You go try to pull that off. In him, all the promises find their yes. It's beautiful. Another thought. Jesus provides an authentic mission for us to prioritize over everything else. We should care about the gospel ministry so highly that we would not let anyone or anything stand in our way as we carry out the mission. Not other people, not our own trials, not our own suffering. Paul was on mission, a beautiful example. We should be on mission as well. Seeking the lost for God's glory. Two more, I think. Jesus is coming again. I love this little paradox in the passage. Uh, It's obvious that Paul didn't keep his promise to come, yes? (laughs) He, he, He got there... The Corinthians were unsure. God promised to send Jesus, and he did. And Jesus promised to come again, and he will, period. And he left his spirit to prove it. And lastly, if God can be trusted to save, this is an argument from the greater to the less. If God can be trusted to save your soul, why do you mistrust him for the various details of your earthly pilgrimage here on this world? That's what Paul said to the Corinthians. Man, if you can trust me to bring you the gospel, if God can save you, why are you, why are you worried about the little minutiae? If you can trust God to save your soul, you can trust him for the details. You sure can. God does not say yes, but, and then reject us. God does not say yes, but you've certainly made a mess of your life. He doesn't say yes, but you're a loser who's failed over and over and over again. No, that's not what God says. God says yes, To those of us who are corrupt, fallen, and sinful, God says yes. God wants it clearly understood that in Jesus, the answer is always yes. So let's stand. And the Bible says that if you're in Jesus, you, yeah, go ahead. You can stand. We're going to sing. But we're going to do one thing right before we stand, before we sing. The Bible says that um, we should declare our amen to God. And we're going to do that in song as well. But um, this passage as well from the Apostle Peter shares a similar sentiment that I thought we could read together before we sing the last song. Let's read together. Blessed be 
the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Yes.